Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17. Today we're going to talk about the theme, never fight alone. Never fight alone. And we're going to see a very powerful example of intercessory prayer. Moses, as the nation defends itself against a vicious onslaught, will go up on a hilltop and pray and intercede for his nation the entire time that the battle is going on. And basically the battle will turn successfully or in defeat on his prayer. And so that has been an illustration for people ever since. This, This example of Moses sitting on the hilltop with his hands in the air, with Aaron and Hur on either side holding them up, bearing them through the day, the entire day, praying through the day, has touched men and women ever since. It's a powerful example, and, and uh, we're learning as a people to be a people of real prayer. And I want you to know that there are things that will move in your life, things that have stood and areas that have been strongholds that can be broken when we learn the kinds of lessons we're going to learn today as we see this example from Moses praying at Rephidim. Holy Spirit, come now. Open the Word of God to us and open our hearts to the Word of God. We would hear with faith and not with our ears only. And Lord, I ask for the grace to speak your Word so that you can speak through and we can hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No sooner had rivers of water flowed out of the rock at Rephidim, remember that, than Israel experienced a vicious, unprovoked attack. The Amalekites were distant relatives. Amalek was actually the grandson of Esau, Jacob and Esau, if you remember. And therefore should have welcomed the news that Jacob's descendants had been freed from slavery in Egypt. But instead, they sent an army to attack when Israel was faint and weary. In fact, the Amalekite soldiers deliberately targeted the young, elderly, and infirm who walked slowly at the end of the procession. They showed neither mercy for their weakness nor a fear of God who visibly preceded the nation in the cloud and fire, slashing through the stragglers like sharks through a school of fish. When darkness fell, Moses had a chance to regroup and develop a battle strategy. He knew they would be hopelessly overpowered without God's intervention. So instead of leading his men in battle, he gave that job to Joshua and committed himself to fight in prayer. And the picture of him standing on that hilltop with his, uh, uh, pardon me, with his hands in the air from morning till night has inspired believers to fervent prayer ever since. His example at Rephidim teaches us important lessons about how to win when we fight spiritual battles. Now, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. 
And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Aaron is Moses' brother, of course. And Hur, in my opinion, is, is Miriam's husband. It's Moses' brother-in-law. So it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. And then his hands were set, were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, the future leader, that I will utterly blot out the, memorial, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he named it, what, do you know what its name is in Hebrew? Jehovah Nissi, right. The Lord is my banner, my battle flag. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. You would have thought that Moses would have been the general of the army himself. It's interesting, the Lord didn't warn them this battle was coming. This is unprovoked and it's unexpected. They are not harming anyone. They are not infringing on Amalek's territory. Amalek's had to get, bring their army down to where Israel is. This is a vicious raid. Unprovoked. No reason for it. Unexpected. The people are, are out in a line as they're moving. With the elderly and the infirm and the young in the back, walking slower than the rest. And as they go through some sort of valley, Amalek comes, is waiting and goes down through the back of the procession, slashing through the weary, the injured, the young, the elderly, mercilessly. Let me show you that. You may say, where do you get that? Turn with me to Deuteronomy, which is a couple of books to the right. I'll show you. Deuteronomy 25. The Lord gives us another description of that moment right here. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. He says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear. When you were faint... And weary, and he did not fear God. Now picture this, you're about to attack this nation, a surprise attack, unprovoked, attacking women and children, uh, elderly, etc. And at the front of this column is the glory of God. Now I would give you a little pause, wouldn't it? I mean, this huge towering cloud that glows with this eerie light, and at night is a fire. I would just sort of say, let's go attack somebody else. It's like that commercial, you know, where they all get to the river and they think we're going to go in. It's a class five. And they said, let's go somewhere else. Or, I think I'd just say, let's, let's viciously attack another innocent group. But they didn't. And God says, they did not fear me. I mean, this is a spiritual issue. In fact, I'm going to show you they're actually attacking Israel because of the Lord. This is a spiritual assault. This is not just an assault on the people. This is because this culture, the Amalek culture, hates 
the things of God and is literally coming to wipe them out. That's why they're there. He says, they hit the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. And it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest, when you're finally in your land, from all your surrounding enemies, in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you must not forget. Now that's a painful note I just read, and I am going to address it at the end. I'll, I'll describe what I think is... The Lord is saying. What a remarkable situation. The strike comes, must have been chaos, people screaming and running for cover. They're not prepared. They don't have an organized military. Men must be looking for swords and whatever they have to fight with, staffs and anything else, trying to get the children and the women to some kind of shelter. It'd be a lot of screaming. It would be an ugly, ugly day. Finally, the mercifully, night falls, and Moses has the ability now to organize, what am I going to do? Well, remember this, they're coming out from Egypt, they're not an organized army, they're, they're, they're still ragtag. And this is an organized military. This is a powerful military that's come against them. They are going to be absolutely slaughtered in the morning, and they know that. And so Moses is in prayer undoubtedly deeply. And he comes up with his plan and he says to Joshua, I'm not going to lead the army. I won't be the general. You're going to be the general. And this is the first time we meet Joshua, by the way. Actually, his name is Hosea right here. And it will become Joshua. And we meet him and he's a young man and he says, you're the general. I am going to be praying while you're fighting. And I promise you this, we're outnumbered. We're in bad shape. We will not win without the power of God. But I am going to go up and I will seek the Lord on behalf of our nation the entire time you're fighting. You fight, I'll cover you. You fight, I'm going to cover you in prayer. And so he goes up to that hilltop with two others, his brother probably and his brother-in-law. And they're up on this hilltop. And he takes in his hand the staff of God, which had represented the promise of God's power. God said, I'll be with you. Take that staff with you, and, and had demonstrated its power through it. So he takes the staff, and as he would hold the staff up, he could, you could literally see on the field below that the battle tide would turn in favor of Israel. They would drive back the, the, the attackers. And when his hand got tired, and any of us, if we tried today to hold our hand up for the whole service, we would be exhausted, let alone through a day. As his hand got tired, he'd have to put that thing down. He'd put it in the other hand, probably. And after a while, he could not have the strength to hold those things up. But when the, when the staff was up, the tide was going one way. When the staff went down, you literally could see the tide turn on the field below. I mean, who knows how, how direct that was. It might have been... I mean, I don't know how direct it was, but he could see the effect. I'm exaggerating. You knew that. On the field, he could watch it. So, I mean, it, it was visible to them. It was visible. It was absolutely obvious. When you were, when we got the staff, and this is a, a, a plea to the Lord, calling on him on his promises. And when the, when the hands were up in prayer, as it were, the, the, the power of God was there, and the Israelite troops were 
were, were pushing them back. When the, when the prayer went down, instantly the tide turned on the field. So they said, we've got to do something. And they brought a stone over. Moses sat on it. And then Aaron on one side holding his arms. And her on the other side holding the other. And apparently he took the staff in, the, in his hands like this. Because in this phrase it says he, they held his hands up. It's plural. And with that staff of God. And all day. Moses prayed. He's not just sitting there with his hands in the air. All day, those men stood on the hilltop, interceding, calling on God for his power and his care of the troops below. All day, long enough for the battle to be won. For the battle to be actually won. They, they did not quit. If they brought it down, uh, the battle would not have been won, but it was won. Let's talk about prayer. First of all, what is prayer? I want you to see some powerful things that Jesus teaches in Matthew 6. Because we're going to look now at intercessory prayer with Moses, but we've got to understand, what is this prayer? What happens when we pray? Matthew 6, verse 5. The Lord says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. So we need to be very careful when we pray that it's not for others' consumption. Not to sound eloquent, not to impress people. It's meant to be heart-to-heart -heart talk with God. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, he's not against corporate prayer. He will actually order us to do it elsewhere. And the early church did it all the time. But the point is, my heart is to be solely set on God, not on what others think of me when I pray. Verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now that last phrase, would you say that with me? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It's extremely important. Let's start out by saying what prayer is not. What prayer is not. The Lord says right here, when you and I pray, we are not informing God of something He didn't know. This is not the first time He's hearing about it. You know, as you say, oh God, we've got this situation. He's going, really? I, you're kidding. How did I miss that? This is not, that, that kind of thing isn't happening. He is not discovering it for the first time. You are not informing of him anything he didn't know. Now that raises a question. If he already knows, why do I need to pray? Why can't he just handle it? Why do I have to be in the equation at all? I've got lots of things to do. I'm a busy man. Why do I have to stop and pray if he already knows? Why don't you just kind of keep things moving and I'll do my part and let's go on. It's just not the way it works and I'm going to explain to you why. First of all, we're not informing him. The second thing we're not doing is changing his mind. We're not talking God into doing something he didn't intend to do. At least I hope not, since he's a holy, pure God and his will is perfect. If you, you and I talk him into something we want him to do, we've now talked him into evil. 
to doing the wrong thing. So God help us that we would change his mind. We are not changing his mind. And by the way, we try to, we, the thing is, uh, yeah, this has to be emphasized just a minute. Because we think God's like another human being and we treat him like we treat each other. So we try to schmooze him. Don't we? We sometimes, some, some of us pout and get angry at God. If he doesn't do what we want or we don't think he's doing it, we're going to not believe in him. And God's up there going, I'm having a terrible day. Shell doesn't believe in me. As if I could pout my way into turning God's heart. And you'll watch people do that. I'm making fun of it right now. But there are people who bitterly spend their lives furiously trying to punish God for what he did. You can't emotionalize him either. Kind of like if I really, really, really cry, he'll feel really, really bad and let me have what I want. No, he just waits you out. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? I've tried all these things, I know. I'm just save you some trouble. So prayer is not informing God. Prayer is not changing his mind. What is it? Well, he tells us now. Look back here at Matthew, verses uh, 9 and 10. He says, your father already knows what you need, so pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So first of all, remember who it is you're coming to. Your loving, heavenly Father who is holy and pure. You don't want to change his will and his, his love toward you is perfect. Now, here's the key. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say that with me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the key. When I'm praying, my, the, my, the power of prayer is when I align my will with God's and I draw the kingdom of God, his rulership, his will, and I bring it to bear in my life or in that situation. That's where power is. Prayer does change things. Now, some of us may have a mentality that believes this, that God is sovereignly in control of everything that happens in life. If some tragedy happens, it's because God in his infinite wisdom let it happen. If somebody is doing something evil, it's because God in his infinite wisdom allowed that to happen or doesn't want that person to be saved. I mean, there's, all, there's, a, there's a huge construct that people have in their brains over this. Well, listen, if God is in control of everything that happens, then there is no real purpose in prayer, is there? Nothing's going to change. Why pray? Well, and if I'm not changing his mind, why pray? Ah, if you understand the truth, I want to say something. There is a real spiritual world. It's as real as this world. There are laws to it. There are, there's, there's personalities in it. The spiritual world is as real as the physical world you live in. And when we get in touch with that and understand that the Bible says there's a battle going on in the spiritual world. That everything is not as God wants it to be. In fact, you find places in the Bible where, where it says that everything happens the way God wants it to happen. I'd be interested to find that. Because all the way through, you see God at war. 
And if you understand that we're living on a fallen planet and there is a war on for the souls of men and women, that's really what it's all for. When we understand that, then, oh, prayer takes on another dimension. Suddenly, prayer matters. And if what the Lord has just said is, I can, and why would he ask me to do it otherwise? I can reach out and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somehow, in this equation, you and I have an authority. We have a right, a privilege. We have authority to pray and say, may the kingdom of God, the will of God, be brought to bear in this situation. And it will be. Okay, that changes things. Now prayer has real effect. Now prayer has real meaning. And if you and I believe this, we'll pray. If you understand that things change when you pray, that you have a right to bring in the will of God, and it won't be brought in necessarily. I can't say never. I can't say God can't sovereignly do what he wants to do. He does, thank heavens, do what he wants to do. However, here's what you'll note. Though God will sometimes act unilaterally, things generally stay on a downward course without prayer. That's what you'll observe in life. Things generally stay on a downward course without prayer. Your family goes from bad to worse. Your health goes from bad to worse. Whatever it is tends to go in a negative direction. But when you start praying with real faith and you begin to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and you begin to draw in the will of God, it turns. Doesn't it? Things change. Prayer does change things. And boy, is that the message of Moses at Rephidim. It changes so much, it changes on the moment. When his hands go down, the battle turns. When his hands go up, the battle turns. Couldn't be a louder message that prayer changes things. All right, now let's look at the lessons back there in Exodus. Go back with me to Exodus 17. And let's see the lessons we learned from Moses, or some of them here. Verse 9 and 10. Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us, go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Basically, Moses said to Joshua, you fight, I'll pray. You fight, I'll pray. I'll cover you. You step out in mission, you step out in what God's called us you to do, and I will cover you while, you while you fight. Remember at the Red Sea, when Egypt was coming after them, God did it all, didn't he? All they did is, all they had to do is head east when the water parted. That was the entire thing they had to do to have deliverance. But not here. Something's different. There are times when we're tested, there's times when we're punished, and there's times when we're attacked. And this attack is a spiritual attack. I'm going to show you that in a minute. This is a spiritual attack. And there's something about those things. Persecution is not something we're promised we are exempt from, are we? Persecution, actually, we're promised will come to us. All those who live godly will be persecuted. Boy, what a promise. Let's cross-stitch that one and, you know, put it up on the wall. Hallelujah, honey. We're going to be persecuted. So, 
that's one thing God doesn't say, I will insulate you from. But he does say this, I'll fight with you. Notice that? When they come, I'll fight with you and you will be victorious. He promises that, but he doesn't say we won't be assaulted. So here's that. This, I, I, I contend this is a spiritual assault against the people of Israel because they have God among them. That's why Amalek's come. Key number one, faith. Moses had the eyes to see the spiritual dimension, recognizing there is a real spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes. There's numerous places in the Bible where it says such things as our, our, our battle is not against people, flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That in the spiritual realm, there is real forces that affect the physical realm. Do you believe that? I mean, because, you know, some people really don't. Some people are fundamentally existentialists, meaning they believe that what exists is only what you can see, feel, touch, and experience. That which I can directly experience is with my five senses. That's all that ex exists. Everything else is a myth. John Lennon in his song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven above us, no hell below us. And he's trying to say, get over it, would you? And realize there's nothing more than this life. If you could just come to grips with that, you could at least live bravely. That's where existentialists always end up, is bravely living in the fact that they're going to be compost and eaten by maggots when they're done. And they, they get so brave, they do things like John Hem, uh, uh, that, like Hemingway and Hanaway. It leads to terrible, terrible depression. It's a horrible, horrible way to live. You know, we try to teach it to our children in our school systems. We want to make sure they know they're evolved pond scum. And then, of course, we don't want them to do drugs. Why is it again? Why shouldn't they do drugs if they're evolved pond scum? What difference does it make? I mean, you know, this business, you, you can deal with the morality that's going on in our country right now. There either is a God with a moral standard, or there is not a God, and there is no moral standard. That's the only real choices. And so when you have a society like ours right now, if you take God out of it, there is no reason not to do some of the things they're doing. Right. They're right. They're correct. Given their worldview, that is truth. But if there's a God... And if he's a holy God, if he holds us accountable for our lives, that changes everything. There's two worlds. Pick one, A or B. There aren't really any others. So Moses had eyes to see. Notice this. We're outnumbered. We're going to get devastated tomorrow. But I believe in the power of God. I believe in the spiritual world. I know that this thing can be one in the spiritual and that it will affect the physical. And we won't win without it. Number two, verse 11. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Basically, God was saying this to Moses. You pray, I'll fight. When you pray, I'll fight. God says, I'll get in this thing and I'll stand with you and I'll fight with you when you're praying. And this was a pretty intense spiritual thing. It couldn't be just one little prayer. Couldn't be just to get up on the hilltop saying, Oh, God bless us today. Hallelujah. Amen. And then sit down and watch. Couldn't be like that. This had to be wrestled through in the spirit. It had to be persistent in the spirit because this was a deep and a, a, a powerful assault against them. 
This one didn't go quickly. Have you fought battles that don't go away quickly? You know, you get a lot of glib people. I've heard people say, oh, you only pray once. And if you pray more than that, means means you don't have any faith. God just wants you to pray once. You're going to lose a lot of battles if you follow that counsel. Of course God heard you pray the first time. That isn't the point. In fact, it, and, it, and Jesus says it isn't the words that he listens to. It's the fact of the heart. And it's the lifting up of faith that lays hold of the kingdom of God and brings it into this, this situation. That's where the power is. It's in its prevailingness, in its consistency. The power of prayer is not in what you say. It's in that you're consistently standing before God, buying time for him to work. Now, I'll teach you a lesson right now if you want to learn something. I'll tell you how prayer works. I've lived a long, long time with this now, and I've tried all the wrong mistakes, and I've also discovered the right ones. And I have found it is not in my many words. By the way, I've, 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 I've been encouraging you to have a Sabbath, and a number of you have been trying that. And what you've understood is that you, for three to four hours in a given block, we're going to talk at God. And it's pretty tiring, isn't it? That's not what we mean by a Sabbath. A Sabbath is being with God for three or four hours, not talking at him. That's hard on him, too. <laughs> it really is, I think. Just He doesn't want to be talked at for four hours. It isn't keeping some monologue. He knows everything. It's that you're there with him. He'll give you something to talk about. You have a conversation with him. You sit with him in his presence. Read something. Worship. Write out your concerns. Just have a sweet time with him. Just have a sweet time with him. Be with God for three or four hours. Not talk at him. The key to spiritual vi the victory in spiritual warfare is consistency, not lots of words. Let me show you that since I'm at it. Luke 11. I didn't do this in every service, but I, I just think I'll, I want to make a, my point here. The Lord actually says what I'm talking to you about right now, the importance of consistency. Luke 11, verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come from it, to me from... A journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother me. The, uh, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Well, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, you keep knocking on that door, and he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Maybe not with a good attitude, but you will get what you ask for. So I say to you, ask... And by the way, the Greek would imply, and keep on asking, give, and, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. This is a parable of contrast. The Lord is not saying God is like a lousy neighbor. You know, pester him, and he'll finally begrudgingly give you what you want. The point of this parable is, if your lousy neighbor will respond to pestering, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father give that which you ask of him? You see that? 
That's, that's actually what he's, that's, that's how he refines it in the next verse. I didn't read them, but if you follow verse 11, he goes on and he says, If a son asks for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? And he begins to talk about, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more? That's the point. How much more will God answer you? And yet the point is still there. Persistence matters. And we're finding out why. Because there's really a battle on because there's really resistance. Because there's free will. Free human will. There's all kinds of variables in these equations. And you and I need to buy God time to have the kingdom of God break into situations. Persistence is a key. Moses is teaching that by his example on the mountaintop. One other thing I want to bring out of that that's a key also. What does he hold up uh, before the Lord on the mountaintop? The staff. And what did the staff represent? The promises of God, exactly. I, I give you the reference. The Lord says, take the staff and I'll be with you. The power of God will be with you. And so Moses, on this mountaintop, it does not appear that God gave him a specific promise for that battle. He went up on the mountaintop, grabbed the staff and said, you promised. You promised. I'm standing on your promises. And God honored it. I had a, a woman talk to me, actually just this week. And she said, Pastor, six years ago, I came to you and I said, my daughter is in total rebellion to God. What do I do? How do I pray? And she said, you told me, get a promise and stand on the promise, on the word of God. So she said, I did. I, I went before the Lord and he gave me a verse, a promise for my daughter. And she said, for six years, I have stood on that promise, believing God. And she said, it's been a horrible six years. She said, my daughter has just gone into some of the most dark things you can imagine, the most deep rebellion and defiance you can imagine. She said, I just ached at times. And she said, hanging on and trusting that promise. At times I felt like an absolute fool, an absolute fool for believing, but I kept hanging on. She said, Pastor, now my daughter has just come back to the Lord. She's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. She is absolutely on fire for God. And she said, I can hardly believe my eyes. Notice how long it took. Six years. Notice what she held before God. She didn't... She held the promises before God and she said, I'm trusting you. I am trusting you. I am trusting you to meet me. And did he? Yeah. You and I can turn the toughest situations if we learn these principles. This is how the hard things move. This is how the assaults against your family and your health, your job. This is how the mental assaults and the, and the, and the pain and the, and the the things that go on inside us. This is how you turn the tide. These are keys. Not just a little prayer here and a little prayer here. Not just asking others to pray for you. Though they can, and we're going to get to that. They can stand with you, but you need to be part of this equation. You need to set yourself to persevere in prayer. Moses is modeling that. Then the third point is in verse 12. Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. 
Aaron and Hur basically said to Moses, you pray, we'll help. Key number three, humility. The understanding that I am too weak to fight alone. I am too weak to fight alone. As humans, our physical endurance is limited. We need people who will pray with us. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one. 4.12 says, A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If he'd been on the mountain alone, if he'd said, I'm just going up there alone and I've got the staff of God and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll cover you in prayer. What would have happened? They would have lost. Do you realize that? They would have lost. He could not have done it. Physically. If you and I have to come humbly in touch with our own limitations, you are made out of flesh and blood. You are, there's a weakness to you in your humanity. And you and I need each other. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. It is intended for us to stand with one another in our battles. To pray for one another. To be with one another. And listen, the American church is so individualistic. So individualistic. So treats its religion like, a, like, like, like theater that we go to once a week. And expects because I show up occasionally in church... That I have this magic blessing over my life. And flaunts the values of God. I'm telling you there's ways of the spirit. There are things that you do and, they, and then it changes things. And if you don't know how to do those, it won't change. We have to walk wisely in the things of God. And one of the keys is you and I need each other. When we have mission teams, we bring them up here. We lay hands on them. We send them out. And I always say, how many of you will commit yourself to praying for these each day? You will hold up our team and pray for them. Mention them before the Lord each day. I don't ask you to go on long diatribes with God. Just lift them up daily. And there are hundreds of people who raise their hands, usually sign a list in the back, and commit to that prayer. I'll tell you something. If you, don't, you need to someday go on one of these mission trips. And you need to experience what it is to feel that divine support in prayer. It is remarkable. It is remarkable. You can feel the prayers. You can feel the care. You see the grace all around you. It's like stepping into sort of a miracle zone. It's really cool. You need to have this. Now listen, it doesn't just happen when we go to Sunnyside or to Papua New Guinea or wherever it else... Royal Family Kids Camp. It isn't just when people are going to these missions. When you deal with a family issue, you can have others pray for you and you can walk on the same miracle. When you have health issues, you can have others stand with you, as it were, Aaron and her, holding your hands up. In fact, it's vital. You need to be in an LTG. You need to have spiritual friends. You need to have others pray with you. This is how we overcome. This is how we overcome. Together, praying for each other, standing with each other. When I get tired, somebody's covering me. When I'm weary, somebody's holding my hands up. So I'm not doing this alone. Please don't fight your battles alone. You'll lose. You say, no, I'm tougher than you think. I'm going to tell you something. You're flesh and blood and the devil's not. He never sleeps. He doesn't weary. You're not going to beat him. 
The way we win is together. And together we can defeat him. Together we can defeat all kinds of assaults. I believe that the more we pray together, the more we learn to stand as a people, we can literally move the course of nations. Wouldn't this be a good time to be praying together in America? With all the stuff that's going on in our nation, wouldn't it be good for the people of God to really begin to pray together? Jesus says, if two or more of you agree as touching anything they shall ask, it shall be done for me and my Father which is in heaven. doesn't say he won't listen to the individual prayer, but he says something about a synergy when believers come together. Last Thursday night, we had a prayer meeting. And the power of God was palpable. People began to pray together. We covered, you, we covered the bases. We covered the nation. We covered the, our church. We covered gospel preaching churches in the area. We covered uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We just, on and on, we covered things. And people just uniting their hearts. And you could just sense what was going on spiritually. I want to tell you something. I believe that God is calling for that on a regular basis from our church. And I intend to have a weekly prayer meeting here. And I would invite you to be part of it. Some of you may say, I have a hard time being disciplined in prayer. Bring a little piece of notepaper, write all your concerns on it, and come and pray with us. It'll be an hour and a half. I'll keep it, I'll, keep it, I'll release you. Now, nobody left when I released them, but that's not my fault. I'll stayed and talked and prayed and stuff. We won't throw you out. But I won't, it won't drag on all night. But we're going to pray. We're going to pray intensely. We're going to pray aggressively as a people together. And then I hope there's LTGs and there's many churches that are praying. There's dear friends. People come to the altar to, and ask me about something. I say, do you have people who pray with you? Many of you have had me ask that question. Do you have people who pray with you? Because of this. This, what, this is it. You need Aaron and her. You shouldn't be alone in your struggles. One last point I want to just touch on, because it's a painful one, and that's the last few verses of this passage. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as, as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And, the Lord, and Moses built an altar and named it Jehovah Nissi. And then he, mine says that the Lord has sworn. I'll tell you what the, the literal Hebrew is in that verse 16. The re, literal Hebrew. And why they don't just give it I, is beyond me. I don't know. It says, a hand is on the throne of Yahweh. Isn't that a strange phrase? A hand is on the throne of Yahweh. War is between Yahweh and Amalek from generation to generation. God says that culture hates me. This is an assault on me. And he said, they're not going to quit. You're going to fight them from generation to generation. There is a demonic stronghold in that culture. And so he says, at some point, I will wipe that culture out. Now let me explain why I, this is my, my thoughts. I, I think the Lord actually showed this to me. I've never thought it before, but I believe it to be correct. Why would he do that? Why would... You know, people have this picture of the God of the New Testament being a really nice guy, or at least his son is, and then they think the God of the Old Testament's kind of a mean, mean, crotchety sort of fella. And how come? Of course, they haven't read all of the New Testament. Just get into 
book of Revelation and see how nice things are. But anyway. I contend they're the same God. And I believe Yahweh of the Old Testament is the Son of God. That that's why he's the Word. is He is the communication for the Father to this earth and always has been. He's the Word of God. Let me read this. Someday... God would eliminate that demon-controlled culture, that Amalek culture, because it was only producing people who hated him. Such a culture had to be eradicated like a spiritual cancer, or it would continue to infect generation after generation of children born into it, dooming them to eternal judgment. All human cultures have evil influences, but some are so degraded, God mercifully ends them, to prevent the powerful spiritual disease they contain from spreading further. Imagine this, a culture which is a vortex dragging souls to hell. Every child born into it will be so perverted that they will perish. If you knew you were going to be born and go to hell, would you rather not be born? It is the more merciful thing, is it not? And I believe there apparently are cultures, in fact, we have examples of others, Sodom and Gomorrah. And... Anyway, I give you some references. You can check them later. But there's cultures that are literal vortexes for souls. And every child born of those things is taken to hell. And there's a point where God says, I'm sick of souls going to hell. We're cutting this one off. And it's not a cruel thing. See, you and I really don't put hell into the calculation, do we? We don't, we don't believe in it. But you put it into the calculation and you realize the merciful thing of God is to stop this horrible drain of souls into hell. He stopped it so others wouldn't go there. What are our lessons? What's prayer? What is it not? What isn't prayer? First of all, it isn't informing God of something he didn't know. Secondly, it isn't changing his mind. What is it? It is partnering with him, laying hold of his kingdom, and somehow we have the authority and privilege of, by faith, bringing his kingdom into the situations of life around us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are given that privilege. Now, what are the key lessons we learn from, from Moses? First of all, what is it? Faith. And what is the faith? The eyes to see there's a spiritual world behind this physical world. And that prayer changes it. That this is a real battle. Not some naive little predestinational kind of thing. There's a real battle on and prayer makes a difference. Moses knew that. Second thing, perseverance. These kinds of battles are won over time. There's a matter of perseverance. Not one prayer here, not one prayer there, but persevering. Spiritual battles are real battles. And then how do we persevere? What is the most powerful way of standing before God over time and contending? Lifting before him. His promises, trusting as oh, the rod of God, trusting him, standing that way. And finally, we need humility. The third key is humility. I'm not strong enough alone. I need my brothers and my sisters. I need to be part of the family of God. I need others standing with me and I will stand with them. I've been joined into a family I am not simply an individual isolated soul on my way to heaven, but I'm part of the family of God, and together we can defeat anything the devil sends against us. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? How many of us are willing to be part of an army 
an army of spiritual soldiers, as it were, who learn to pray together, bringing in the loving, healing, saving, rescuing, delivering will of God. How many of us are willing to let that kind of faith burn in our hearts and stand together as a people, praying for nations, praying for, for people in hospitals, praying for marriages that are in trouble, praying for children that are wayward, for praying for God's mighty power, and willing to stand and believe. I believe this is a call today to Northwest Church. I think he's calling churches all over America, but I think this is his voice to us today. Are you and I willing to be that kind of people? To come to pray together, to, to, to look for serious, disciplined opportunities and make persevering prayer. You say, I will be a soldier. I understand what the lessons were from Moses today. I will be that kind of man or woman. I understand there's a spiritual world. I understand perseverance is essential. And I understand I'm, I have to, uh, humility, that I know I need others. And I am powerful together when joined with the family of God. I'll be that kind of man or woman who wants to say, I'll do that. Hallelujah. Just keep your hand before the Lord for a minute. Father, we are joining. We are enlisting. We understand the, 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 the call that's coming from the Holy Spirit onto the church today. We are going to be men and women. I stand in first in line, Lord. I will be a man of, of increased prayer. I will join my heart with others in united prayer. Thank you, Lord, for birthing prayer meetings. Thank you for putting together prayer partners. Thank you, Lord, for stirring prayer in our many churches. Thank you, Lord, for the LTGs that gather and pray together. Thank you, Lord, that in this thing we will see the will of God, the kingdom of God, break into things. Strongholds will move. The enemy will be pushed back. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom will come. That we can change the course of life as we stand partnering with you in this battle. We will be that kind of people, Lord. You can count on it. Teach us now to walk in this. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.